LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today you join us for part three of our interview with Gary Lachman discussing his book, Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. If you're listening on LegalizeFreedom.com, you'll find links to parts one and two on the website page for part three. If you're listening on YouTube, you'll probably find links to parts one and two among the suggested videos on the right-hand side of your screen. In part three, we consider how Wilson's worldview differed from that of many in the literary movement he was all too often lumped in with the so-called angry young men, such as John Osborne and Kingsley Amos, who rose to prominence during the 1950s. Wilson held an unfashionable belief in the power of self-improvement over and above that of social protest or utopian politics. Indeed, his ideas about the possible emergence of a new human, physically and mentally improved, coupled with his criticism of what he saw as the widespread denial of genius and worm's eye view of the world, were in certain circles condemned as nothing less than fascist. We also discuss Wilson's appearances on television and radio, and his many works of fiction, some of which were adapted for stage and screen. Gary then recalls the occasions when he was fortunate enough to actually meet Colin, and we examine some of his later works, wondering just where his investigations might have led him had he lived longer. Hello and welcome, Gary, and thank you once again for joining us uh, on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, it's my pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me on. Uh, today, Gary, we're going to complete a little three-part series that we've done uh, talking about the author Colin Wilson, specifically some ideas and thoughts inspired by uh, your book Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. Before we dive into that, as usual, just give listeners who are coming to this for the first time just a little bit of a potted bio, yourself, your career, uh, your work in general. Uh, well, uh, I um, write books, as you as you mentioned, about um, sort of philosophy and psychology and esoteric and the occult, and um, about uh, sort of the history of consciousness, as it were. And uh, I started interest, uh, my interest in this sort of thing began many, many years ago when I was a musician uh, back in the um, uh, late 70s. Uh, and uh, I was precisely coming across a book by uh, Colin Wilson um, that he had put out in the early 70s called The Occult, uh, which is the history of the occult. And um, that got me on, on the road to being interested in all this sort of thing. Um, and um, writing um, this book, um, Beyond the Robot, uh, Life and Work of Colin Wilson, was kind of a sort of a lifetime achievement um, sort of goal for me because um, when I first came across Wilson's work in uh, 1975 and I was living in 
uh, New York uh, on the Bowery. I was playing in um, Blondie uh, before anybody knew who Blondie was. Um, um, that this book really uh, it just really uh, bowled me over. Uh, and not only because it was a book about the occult and about the supernatural and the paranormal, those sorts of things, but because Wilson approached it in this philosophical way. Uh, and it was um, looking at the occult in terms of this philosophy of consciousness that he had been developing for many years. And um, since reading it then uh, and writing about it, I mean, I did, uh, I think I, I wrote this book in 2015, uh, now 2016. Uh, that was, you know, uh, it's, you know, 25, uh, what, 35, 40 years uh, later. Uh, uh, yeah, Wilson's been a uh, central, central uh, influence on um, all the books I've done since then. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, this is part three of a little trilogy that we've done. Listeners who are interested can find links to part one and part two on the interview page for this interview. So that's all there. We won't backtrack on any of that content. And this really, for me, is a bit of a mopping up exercise with not so much random thoughts, but part one and part two were quite systematic. And this is a collection of thoughts and musings that I had on reading your book. Uh, so we'll just jump around a little bit from one subject to the next, all Colin Wilson related, of course. But the recent reissue of his second book, Religion and the Rebel, it reminded me that Colin didn't deny the spiritual aspect of existence far from it. And he um, acknowledged the role of religion in our personal and public lives and reminded me again that he was not, as he was categorized at the time, particularly the, upon the publication of The Outsider, he wasn't one of the angry young men of that era uh, who were mainly very concerned with social issues. In fact, in some ways, particularly as he went on in life, Wilson could more have been categorized, if at all politically, you know, as more conservative leaning uh, with a small c. And uh, there's a quote from him as follows, I was aggressively non-political. I believed that people who make a fuss about politics do so because their heads are too empty to think about, <laughs> to think about more important things. And that made me, all of that made me think about where we are right now. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was thinking, oh God, what on earth would Wilson have made of, uh, you know, where we are with Trump and Brexit and what have you. And I'm sure he'd have had plenty to say, plenty to say and nothing in some ways. Um, he wouldn't have wanted to be concerned with it, but um. well, I mean, funnily enough, I mean, um, the book out coming out um, later this year uh, deals precisely with Trump and um, all the strange post-truth and uh, kind of politicizing of reality. Um, but uh, getting back to Collins' uh, second book, Religion and the Rebel, no, he certainly um, didn't rule out the possibility that the outsider could find an answer to his uh, dilemma, uh, to his questions, uh, religion. Um, at the end of The Outsider, Wilson even says, um, you know, um, talking about that, uh, the, at, at the end of The Outsider's Long Road, he, he basically, he, he, he may, it may lead him to being a saint. Uh, and uh, Wilson himself for a while thought that um, entering a monastery uh, might work for him. Uh, the discipline, the austerity, the asceticism, the kind of order, and also the sort of uh, separation uh, from ordinary life, which he felt was, you know, leading nowhere, and uh, just sort of uh, uh, this constant sort of repetition of meaninglessness and pointlessness. Uh, and uh, you're right to say he wasn't an angry young man um, in the way that, say, John Osborne 
or um, Kenneth Tynan or some of the other more left-leaning, uh, socially oriented um, uh, characters were from, from that time. And as you know, they all attacked him. I mean, they, they called him a fascist and all this sort of thing, precisely because he wasn't interested in politics. He, he was, I mean, he thought, actually, Wilson thought of himself as a socialist, and he started out really as an anarchist. Uh, he used to give uh, anarchist speeches uh, in Hyde Park Corner. Um, in the early 50s, when, um, when he was just writing, he was just living in London. And in fact, he used to, he worked at a, uh, he was a hospital porter, um, uh, somewhere, uh, you know, way over on, on the west, on the west side, uh, in Fulham or somewhere like that in London. And then he used to cycle with his kind of soapbox on his back over to Hyde Park Corner. Uh, in order to put it down and give these, these wild sort of anarchist speeches. And, uh, but he was never particularly, Political, but he considered himself a socialist because he was a great um, devotee of Bernard Shaw. And it wasn't until he wrote a book about Shaw that he realized that Shaw's arguments for socialism didn't add up. And they were always more conservative in the sense that he was more concerned about, rather than social change, personal change, and a spiritual a spiritual change. The possibility of that is what he examines in Religion and the Rebel. It's actually... It's the one book in which he is, he is, he is actually quite angry. I mean, there's an, he's not, again, not in a social sense, or, or, or at least in, in an even more, uh, total, uh, sense than, than the, um, sort of the Marxists or the socialists, um, uh, attacking him were, because he saw the need for a complete, you know, complete, uh, change and transformation. There's the, the, some of the anger that comes out in Religion and the Rebel is also in his first novel, Ritual in the Dark. But the, the main thing that he says, he says outsiders, you know, appear as pimples on, 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 on the face of this dying civilization. You saw Western civilization was really, you know, going down the tubes. And it's, it's the, it's a kind of very, uh, I think he wrote out a lot of this kind of world rejection. And if you know, if, if, if you read The Outsider and then Religion and the Rebel, and then you read the rest of the books of what he's, what's called his outsider cycle, Age of Defeat and The Strength of Dream, Origins of Sexual Impulse and Beyond the Outsider, and then he sums this all up in his book about the new existentialism. The, the subsequent books, they're much more um, calm, not in the sense that he's not, there's not passion and energy and fire there, but there, it, it's, it's much less, obje- it's much more objective. Uh, there's much more of a kind of personal sense of rejection. He's, he's actually slipped into a more philosophical, even scientific mode where he's, he's trying to calmly and patiently piece together the evidence for, for the alternative to the despair. Mystical experience was something that Wilson wanted to explore uh, through through the sort of um, avenues of religion. You mentioned a few moments ago um, Osborne. I mean, the, the final part of that quote that I um, cited earlier was um, so from Colin. So I felt nothing but impatient contempt for Osborne's Jimmy Porter and the rest of the heroes of social protest. And um, what you said about his quest for um, belief in the power of personal transformation, about spiritual transformation. Individually and, and collectively, is something that always drew me to his work from a very early stage. When I started to read Wilson in the early 80s, it was also when I started to read some of the books from the 70s that were very concerned about where we were headed as a society, energy problems, environmental problems, economic mm. problems. And for me, reading Wilson put all that in perspective, and I found myself very much coming down on his side, you know, like, the social protest, the, the eco-warrior thing, the social justice warrior, all of that, yeah. I found put in perspective by his work. I'm, he was certainly aware of, of all these problems. 
uh, he was certainly aware. And I think in, in the, some of the later books, like in his last sort of decade and in, in the, in the 2000s, there, there are, you know, it's not something that ever became a central kind of, um, topic of him, but there are sort of, uh, allusions or sort of references to like, oh, this, this, this poor earth that suffered, you know, all this kind of damage and so on and so on. So, um, um, he, he was aware of this sort of thing, but it wasn't something that was his central, you know, concern. And I mean, he knew pe- people like uh, Schumacher and um, others who were involved in more, let's say, actual kind of activist sort of uh, projects out there. You know, different ideas about sort of alternative societies and all that. But no, but certainly he was he was much more concerned about the central thing for him was uh, was consciousness. You and I and everyone else's our, our own consciousness. Uh, and, and our, you know, ability to understand it more and, and to increase it and, 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 and to develop a kind of, uh, to develop a strong grasp on the sense of values. I mean, this was, I think, the thing that was most important for Wilson. And this is where I think he differs from, as we say, a, 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 a broader kind of school or, or concern or interest in consciousness per se, which deals more with sort of altered states of consciousness and much more kind of, non-rational or mystical uh not to say that wilson wasn't interested in this but you know he, he was he, i think he was much more interested in in a, in a more kind of controlled and focused and you know how should we say it a kind of controlled peak experience in the way that you, you, you're not after the peak experience for the just the sheer enjoyment of it it's it's the meaning that is revealed I and mean, the meaning that one sees in it is the source of the the pleasure and and, and the surprise and the joy and all that and um it, the idea that we could somehow learn how to not manufacture these things. They're not sort of a produce or a product that you can make. They're, they're basically, uh, they, they take place because, you know, um, somehow for some reason that we don't yet have conscious control of, or, you know, our consciousness sort of just works the right way. Um, and this was the sort of thing that, um, you know, he, he was, striving for and he focuses on and you know he gets closer and closer his 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 approach to this becomes more and more fine-tuned and this is what i try to do um with, with my book is uh spell out that he you know this this philosophy of consciousness has had that, that was very very finely tuned and he kept really close to it and it was empirical and it was you know sort of uh phenomenological and um it's something that i think that once you start getting into wilson's work you recognize that it's you know and it's something that one can follow and develop Personally, I do interviews based on social and political issues, uh, what I call the three E's, energy, economy, environment. I do that stuff all the time. And yeah. a big dimension of that uh, isn't, it's because whatever I think, whatever I feel, uh, these issues affect people. People act based on their feelings about these issues, if you see what I mean. So it's a bit like saying, oh, you know, life is just a dream. Well, maybe, but people are living and dying and loving and hating in the dream, if you see what I mean. So these are still things that are affecting the lives of other people. However, I might feel that I can, would like to try and transcend them as best I can. Millions, billions of people are affected this way. So mm-hmm. I, I think Colin would have recognized that as well. It's like whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you feel about, whatever your worldview is, other people don't necessarily share it. And mm-hmm. we, we have to kind of factor that in. No, of course. I mean, well, I, 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 you know, the universe, it's a big universe. I mean, in the sense that, yeah, there should be room enough for different, you know, views and all that. But I guess in our, in our times, you, 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 you know, mentioning it earlier, um, in the politicizing of it, that aspect, but also we are faced with these issues and they are very, 
polarizing and they seem to be you know they seem to be the sense that something has to you know be done now that kind of thing um so it it, it does seem to be um what do you want to say a kind of uh, things are becoming more intense and um there's perhaps less of a kind of um there seems to be less of a kind of shared medium, uh, uh, you know, among different sorts of ways of doing things. There seems to be different camps are kind of buckling down into what, how they are. And, uh, it, I, I, I don't necessarily want to talk about this, this book that's coming out down, down the road, this book about Trump and sort of occult politics. But in, in it, I do refer to this notion of the war of all against all. And this was something that Rudolf Steiner talked about in a series of lectures he gave um, just before World War One. And obviously, it's something that goes back to Leviathan and, 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 and Hobbes and all that. But there does seem to be a case where, you know, there's this fracturing, you know, in, into a variety of different sort of goods or values or camps or whatever you want to call it, beliefs that are kind of battling it out. And I, I think, you know, for Wilson, this would be something that the outsider, in a way, or the person pr- pursuing, trying to, um, you know, develop uh, along the lines that, 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 that he's talking about, it has to somehow recognize that there have been other times in history where it's like this. Funnily enough, this is one of the conclusions he comes to is sort of at, at the end of Religion and the Rebel, because he does go into this talking about history and the outsider in history. Toynbee's idea of the whole challenge and response kind of process, uh, whereby he, he understood um, how civilizations kind of rise and fall. They, they, they encounter a challenge, and if the challenge is too great, it wipes them out. If it's not great enough, they become overconfident and lazy and decadent. So it has to be just right. It's kind of, uh, well, it's what I call the Goldilocks theory of history. You know, the challenge has to be just right. And if it is just right, then it motivates the civilization to, you know, muster the strength and the intelligence and the courage to meet it. And Wilson was in that book, he's saying, well, this is where the outsider is. You know, we, 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 we can't succumb to kind of the sense of despair, but we also can't satisfy ourselves with Pollyannish uh, optimism. So it's a kind of, there's, there, there's something that, uh, although most of it never called his, his philosophy pessimism, there, there is something that um, the American historian Jacques Barzin, who lived, I think, to 105 or 107 or something like that, uh, he, had a, he, he had a phrase called cheerful pessimism. And I, I, I think that's the kind of detached but concerned, but kind of meta overview that, that the outsider should strive for. Well, to quote the um, uh, insufferable oaf, but sometime uh, great songwriter Bono, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you can't change the world, but you can change the world in you. And um, Wilson's vision of an improved society, basically through self improvement, you know, inner work, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, that that always resonated with me. You know, his idea of a, a new man, or we should say new new human, or whatever might be more politically correct these days. And he does muse at one point in your book. I can't remember what book it's from, but it's either a quote or you're paraphrasing him. His pondering about perfect combination of strength and intelligence in humans. Mm. Uh, would that balance ever be reached? And this uh, echoes a little bit a comment you made earlier about some of his contemporaries around the outsider period. Uh, viewing him as kind of like, well, like a fascist or something. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of, um, the best people to, to lead, you know, of like an improved human being, uh, it does have that kind of unfortunate resonance depending on your perspective. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I could see how that would get for people who are a bit lazy and, uh, looking mm-hmm. at his work or his ideas that they might sling something like that at him. Or indeed- I mean, he, he, he was basically saying, don't blame society. Don't blame the world for your own sort of misgivings. And he certainly was aware of, you know, in, in, inequality. I mean, he grew up in a, in a, in a very 
um, you know, lower class, working class family. His father didn't make a lot of money. He was he left school when he was 16. He did lots of labor. I mean, I don't know how much hard labor Kenneth Tynan did, you know, who, who's the Marxist <laughs> socialist and all this. And Wilson's digging ditches and things like that and and all this kind of thing. So, I mean, he he, he wasn't. Um, I mean, the funny thing, obviously, we, we all know is that, you know, most there's the whole Hampstead socialist kind of thing, the Salon socialist, the one that, you know. The, it's the it's the middle class who are more concerned about it. The actual you know people who who, who live these wretched lives that they, they want to make so much better or you know have a very different view of things often. Uh, but um, no, I I think the whole idea was that you know um, the problem isn't isn't society so much. It's in, in ourselves. And this is this is a religious kind of point of view. I mean, Wilson in his early books at least he did have a sense of original sin in the sense that. He called it, it's, it's not original sin, but it's original stupidity. You know, most of us and himself included, you know, we're, we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're rather dense and, 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 and so on and so on. And, you know, you, you need, you need a certain amount of discipline in order to get something good out of us. And that for these, for people like Tynan and Osborne and the others, that all smacked of kind of like, you know, Hitler and, you know, just in the sense of, you know, order and, uh, and this kind of thing. But that's, you know, he didn't meet that kind of regimentation because he himself was in the RAF and he hated it and everything. He got kicked out by pretending to be gay, you know, and all these kinds of things. So he, he didn't have any kind of militaristic notion, but the whole idea, he, he, he did recognize that, you know, a lot of our problems come from our own kind of complacency and, and indulgence and self-pity and all that. So he didn't have, and you know, what he saw in Osborne's, like, look back in anger was this long whine. And he wasn't alone. I mean, there were many other people who did at the time, but it became fashionable because Kenneth Tynan wrote this very, you know, very well-written review of it. And suddenly it was, it was, oh, it was all the rage to, to be in rage, to be an angry young man. And Wilson wasn't interested in anything of that at all. And, you know, he was talking about Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and, and Gurdjieff of all people and, and, and all these kinds of things. And this was completely, I mean, in the first case, the Brits aren't interested in any of these once they realized that he was serious about all this kind of thing, and, and he, as such a, you know, he was very naive. If you see these very early interviews with him, he's a very young man. And, you know, it's, it, it, he's very innocently talking about his genius, not in the sense that, you know, he's sort of parading his genius like Oscar Wilde. He's just very innocently, you know, saying, well, actually, yes, I believed in myself and I had to work really hard and all this kind of thing. And, and he, he, he was trying to have some kind of spiritual regeneration at the time. When, when the other writers are more interested in, you know, sort of basically complaining about the, the failures of the, of the, um, welfare state and so on and so on. Much like today, you know, that's the whole thing. If you talk about any kind of religious sense, not in some kind of broad general spiritual thing, which you kind of accept, but, you know, something that's actually a bit austere and hard and demanding and, and, and recognizes our own weaknesses and indulgences rather than sort of making a place for them. That, that you know, in many ways our society is about that. It's about, it's, 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 you know, it's a difference. In one of my books, The Caretakers of the Cosmos, I make a distinction between the, the only human and the fully human. Ma Maslow talked about the fully human, which would be, in a sense, you know, the kind of ideal, uh, let's say, that the outsider strive for, this kind of actualization. We settle for the only human, you know, we're, we're, we're good enough humans or something like that. And this is, yes, of course, we have to have compassion and all that at the same time. It's hard, you know, it's hard to say this without it sounding like, you know, oh, yes, you're turning into a fascist. But that can easily slip into just basically indulgence and, and laziness and all that. And so there's, there's a need for a kind of discipline. And, and the best discipline is the one we, you know, apply to ourselves. It doesn't come from some outside source. And that's, that's again, that's what Wilson is. Outsider wants to do. He doesn't want to, you know, 
accept some discipline from some fascistic leader, nor does he want to lead lots of other people. That's just a waste of time. You know, he wants to be left alone to be able to his own self and his own consciousness. Well, I mean, Wilson always struck me as, uh, you know, in, in his early days as someone that, you know, the, it's a bit of a cliche, you know, the idea of a old head on young shoulders. Mm, and they mm. seem to be like sort of just almost like a reincarnation of somebody. Do you know what I mean? He kind of arrived, not quite fully formed, but uh, more um, developed than perhaps, yes. you know, a lot of his peers might have been. And um, anger seems to be a function of young men in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. These days, I suppose young women as well. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I've always used to joke, like I do today, with like when I, when I meet people young enough to be my own children, and they're living out the angry young man stroke woman mm-hmm. person cliches. It's like, well, yeah, you just meet someone nice, you know, you fall in love, and then suddenly all this will go away. And that yeah. doesn't mean you become fat and happy, but it's, <laughs> it's it, but it's about having just a bigger, a wider view mm-hmm. of yeah. of you know of reality. And just um, be able to see things with a bit more clarity, mm. and uh, so in many ways I, I could share Wilson's, um, you know, reservations, and even I would, to use his word, contempt towards some of the these angry young men, because mm-hmm. it, it just seemed quite, quite, quite naive in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, it's one of the uh, parallels I draw in the book. I think in a foot, couple footnotes is that this is it reminded me very much of the punk phenomena. Because um, sort of the tabloid writers at the time, they were always egging on people like Wilson and Osborne and these others. Oh, come on, be angry, do something, you know, do something. Because, you know, they were looking for, for uh, copy. They were looking for newspaper copy then. Just like today, we look, you know, we have got this much more of a voracious appetite for it now than then. But, you know, people were looking for scandals and all this kind of thing. And Wilson even says it, it, it happened in the silly season in, in, in the summer in August with Parliament's out. There's nothing happening. I mean, there's no politics. There's no news, really. And so they have to find something. And so they would go around to all these different things and, you know, a variety of different ways instigate things happening. And Wilson, I said, he was very, very naive. You know, he was brilliant, you know, obviously. uh, But, you know, as a young man, he was just like, you know, uh, you look at the Beatles, you know, God, you know, they they were people were asking them questions about the meaning of life and how to stop war. And like they were they're 24 or even younger. (laughs) Lots of people taking it seriously. So, I mean, I think Wilson probably had more idea of how to answer that question than John Lennon, uh, you know, even though, you know, he had probably more influence. But in any case, um, <clears throat> but, but I think the thing that happened was that he, he realized it had not, it just wasn't about being angry. It was about, you know, okay, he, he got that out of his system. And that's, that's kind of like the first step in the Cider's dialectic, if you want to sort of talk about it in some sort of systematic, uh, kind of way, you know, this this kind of rejection. You, you you reject the immediate world that you're in because it's holding you back in different ways. And a lot of people stay at that level. I mean the beats kind of stayed at that level. I mean Wilson very quickly lived through the sort of Bohemian experience. Um, I mean funnily enough there's uh, a film made of um of his novel Adrift in Soho. Um, and that's screening. right. That's is that coming out this year or next year? Uh, so I, I, I don't know. There's 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 a there's a screening of it. Um, I'm, I'm supposed to be going to tomorrow. And oh, I, okay, I, I'll I be think, coming out this year then. <laughs> I I think some I I think some bit of it may be at the, this Colin Wilson conference that's happening later. Um, oh yes, yes, as well up, up in Nottingham. Um, but I mean, the funny thing is that his novel Adrift and So is actually a, you know a very you know good natured, but uh, nevertheless. Um, uh, serious critique of the whole bohemian scene. 
I mean, he, he, he just, the character in it, who's Wilson, it's his, you know, another alter ego, but he quickly realizes he's just much more serious, um, than most of the kind of posers around him and all that. And he, and he quickly tires of the bohemian life and all that. And he realizes what he wants is just basically, you know, a stable life where he can just do his work. And it is, again, he, he's no longer this kind of, um, rebel against society. Um, he basically wants to be left alone in order to develop his whole theory of the outsider, in which he, again, he, he writes it out in, in, I said about these six books, and then he writes novels and a variety of other things. At the same time, he's developing all his ideas about crime, which crime and violence and sex crime and all that, these are all related to the outsider because they're a kind of, uh, dark side of the outsider's path. The outsider seeks extremes. He seeks intensity. He wants to, you know, he wants to throw off his lukewarm, uh, life. He, he seeks life more abundant, as the Gospels, you know, tell us to seek. But in in this kind of warped way, that that pursuit, um, if it's frustrated, can can emerge and show itself in in these darker kinds of ways. A theme in his novel *Ritual in the Dark*, which I, I've always described as the brothers Karamat, the br- brothers Karamatsov meet meet Jack the Ripper in in uh, post-war World II uh, London. Jack the Ripper kind of theme, the, the serial killer. And then these three characters who live out, uh, they, they embody these three parts of the human being, you know, the physical, the emotional, and the intellectual. And, and they're also supposed to be three, three characters that Wilson investigates in The Outsider, uh, Nijinsky for the body and Van Gogh for the uh, emotions and T.E. Lawrence for the intellect. It's no, it's that, 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 that novel should be rediscovered. I mean, I, 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 <clears throat> I had some contact with Penguin Classics. So, while ago, and I suggested to them a few times they they should get a jump on things and put that out as a Penguin Classic because uh, it's certainly whatever you think of Wilson, it's a very very good novel and it's a very good London novel too. Well, related to a couple of things that we've spoken about so far, and these are uh, a couple of phrases from your book. Again, I'm not sure if they're from quotes from Colin or your uh, form of words, but there's the phrase "denial of genius" and the phrase "worm's eye view." And this is something that I've kind of observed all my life as a real problem. And again, when I discovered Wilson, I realized that he saw this as well, which mm. is just this kind of lowest common denominator thing that te- that goes on in human society, which ultimately holds us back. Now, I understand, you know, like Wilson proclaiming his own genius in the early days was, how should we say it, you know, problematic. And we can see how that might have been a little bit ham-fisted and naive. But, you know, the basic instinct that he had wasn't misplaced. No, not at all. Not at but, all. But I think it's healthy and innocent, yes. But it, it is an issue, isn't it? It's kind of like that we've the race to the bottom, or as I say, at least lowest common denominator, that we shouldn't get too big for our boots, too ahead of ourselves. And if anyone out there has kind of got some kind of blinding idea that looks like it might move the whole species forward, fine. Yeah. But let's just be... Let's coach it in the right terms, you know. Let's not yes. just get too ahead of ourselves, and that—that's something that I've come up against. Just in I think I, I think that's just characteristic of mankind in general. Mm. Um, uh, and I mean, and, and the, the opposite is also true in the sense that, especially for our time now, um, it's okay. Everyone's a genius then. <laughs> you know, sort of every little thing anyone does is, you know, some sign of creativity. This is kind of like the, in a sense, the Frankenstein monster that the sort of um, self-development or, you know, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, um, you know, um, self-actualization kinds of mm. um, thinking, self-help, um, human potential 
school is, is kind of created in the sense of it's in, it's inflated it. But no, I know exactly what you mean. Funnily enough, I just was rereading um, these stories that um, P.D. Uspensky, you know, the Russian writer and philosopher who was, you know, he's best known as a, a sort of a expositor of Gurdjieff's ideas, but he was a brilliant thinker on his own. And in his early career, he wrote fiction. He wrote a novel, uh, Strange Life of Ivan Asokin, and he also wrote some uh, couple short novellas that he, they were called Talks uh, Talks with the Devil. But but in 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 one of them is the character called the Inventor. This is the story, and he he just says the same very much the same thing in the sense that yes, you know you can you know, some brilliant new thing can be made and all that, but the difficult thing is getting you know people to accept it in a sense because you know we're all very we're, we're very happy with the way things are. We, we don't we don't like to be sort of taken out of our out of our rut and, and our routine and all that. And, uh, and, but also, you know, and, and also what you're saying, this kind of social sense that, no, you're not supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to think you're that much better than anybody else or, um, we're all equal. This is the kind of thing that, uh, nowadays is such, such a kind of buzzword, uh, you know, this, this equality kind of thing, um, which, uh, you know, I mean, what, what do you want to say if you say, if, if you say, well, yeah, of course, yes, but hold on a minute, what do we mean exactly by that? Then suddenly, you know, you're on the alt-right or something like that. But that, that's, that's, we all know this is a problem. The whole idea of this kind of forced egalitarian or, or, or forced e- equality is, uh, in the long run, it, 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 it has very retrograde uh, effects. We can see it in history in places like that. And this is the kind of thing, you know, Wilson's idea of, well, just basically, you know, the whole idea wasn't to go around pro- proclaiming your genius, but to actually, you know, just have confidence in yourself. And and again, he came from this working class background. He came from living a, a sort of milieu or, or, or you know, a, a, um, a small world. Nobody ever thought about anything more than, you know, the, the Sunday papers and, you know, playing the football pools or something like that. So it was this very, very limited um, kind of world. And I mean, I... Myself, I mean, I, I grew up in uh, what's called in the States a blue-collar family. I mean, my, my father and m- mother, they both worked very hard, and they had about three, or, you know, two or three jobs at any time, and they worked and worked and saved, and finally could own their own home and all that kind of thing. So actually, I think we, you know, I grew up in a better kind of um, situation than Wilson, but still, it was a rather small kind of world where <clears throat> your concerns were very, very limited. And if you're the least bit adventurous, the least bit curious, the least bit intelligent and want to understand and this is a natural human appetite this is you know um, maslow says we, we all we as much as we have an appetite for food and all that or for sex we actually have an appetite for, for knowledge we, we have an actual need to know a need to understand and not only for utilitarian purposes of course we use it for those but you know just for the sake of knowing knowing in itself and um, this was the kind of world that wilson had to fight against and um you know it's a shame that that i'm a genius kind of line got tagged to him when he was a young man but again this is what this was this was mana for the the journalists at the time because this was the kind of thing they could get a lot of mileage out of and but the other side of it is that that belief in himself sustained it had sustained him for the 10 years pretty much before he became you know known you know that he was since his teens and you know he was writing and then for the years sort of in the wasteland after the the total rejection of him because Again, going back to Religion and the Rebel, his second book, it was completely massacred. Critics just tore it apart. All, all the critics who were singing his praises of, of the outsider and had made him the boy genius uh, a year or so before, completely, you know, just took him to task and rolled him over the carpet and whatever, <laughs> and the coals and everything else. And, you know, T.S. Eliot, other people told him, you know, take a break, 
don't write for a while, maybe get a job somewhere at a school or something, and then you know let let the let all the scandal die down. And he refused. He just kept writing. And again, that belief in himself sustained him during a period where his books weren't getting reviewed. You know, he, he could always get a publisher, but they they sold they didn't sell lots of copies. They certainly he certainly didn't sell a book of his didn't sell as much until the the occult came out. In, in, yeah, so let's just take a different turn now and talk a little bit about Colin in the media. Uh, that's specifically uh, broadcast, radio and TV. YouTube is a, a goldmine, isn't it really, for all sorts of little nuggets that turn up there. Uh, you know, shows, radio, television, you name it, f- film, all sorts of things that you never knew about or thought were had disappeared forever can, can turn up there in whole or partial form. Uh, so I've been able to discover all sorts of, uh, Colin content, if we put it that way, on, 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 you know, venues like YouTube. And, uh, I was particularly taken by the Leap in the Dark. I think they made four series of that. And, mm. and Colin was in series, presented series two and three, quite short series. Mm. And this was a, a, a British made TV series de- dealing with sort of all manner of esoteric things. And I, I thought that it reflected on, what little seems to remain or what perhaps what little there was in general terms of Colin Wilson as a media personality, but because I, I thought in many ways he'd be ideal because, um, you know, he's always, you know, well-spoken, very erudite and articulate. Yeah. And, uh, even the sound of his voice w- was pleasing to listen to. Yeah. And I remember when I was growing up watching Arthur C. Clarke's strange world, and uh, I'm not sure if he made, he followed that book up with Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers. Now, I know he made a Strange World TV series. I'm not sure if there was a second one or not. The point being, uh, he was virtually uh, a celebrity uh, in term, mm-hmm. along the lines of contemporary popular scientists, you know, that or certainly of um, along the lines of Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and I could very much see Colin, although mm-hmm. very different person, very different thinker. I could mm. see him in that role. I, I could have seen Colin Wilson, if not BBC One, certainly BBC Two, mm. prime mm. time in his heyday, but that mm. never quite happened. That yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, obviously, I mean, I, I wasn't living here during that time. I was in um, the, the the states, but I do know about Leap in the Dark. Um, funnily enough, in his book Mysteries, it came out in '78, which was sort of his follow up to The Occult. And kind of really established him as um, one of the main writers and thinkers about uh, parapsychology. He talks about these panic attacks he was going through uh, during the uh, taping of of, of this pro- of this program, Leap in the Dark, and other things like that. I I think he was in more um, sort of regional television. He does talk about quite a few things that he was on, so an arts program um, whose name escapes me now. Uh, where he was on the panel with a couple other writers, um, um, Alexis Liscard, I think was one of them, um, and um, a couple other things like that. And I also think, you know, in the early days, he was he, there was a he did a program about um, Jack the Ripper. Uh, there was also um, a documentary he made, or he's in, where he's interviewing he did, Ken Russell. Ken Russell. Oh yeah. Um, God, that tells you shows you where I am now these days. Uh, but no, yeah, uh, he knew Russell and he actually did a book about him. And I, I've seen this, uh, um, Colin Stanley, who was, um, Colin Wilson's bibliographer and was also the publisher of Pauper's Press. It's, um, um, go to Cottage Press devoted to Wilson studies and, um, 
other writers are writing about um, you know similar sorts of things, and he's also responsible for the Colin Wilson archive that's up in Nottingham University Library, uh, where the uh, conference will be uh, later on this year. Um, he he had a copy of videos of him and talks and things of that sort in later later life. Uh, uh, again, Colin Stanley <laughs> um, sent me a copy, a very rough, rough copy of uh, a video someone had made in 1981, beginning of 81 in um, London at this place called the Village Bookshop, which doesn't exist anymore in Regent Street. And I was actually at that talk before I had made my pilgrimage to Tetherdown, uh, Wilson's home in, in Goren Haven in, in Cornwall in 83. But I, 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 I was in London in 81 and I saw that he was giving this talk and I was had spent already spent a great deal of time buying up as many Wilson books as I could find in London at the time and I went to this talk and at the very end of the tape of the talk the video of it you can see me walk up to him <laughs> which was very funny to see a little cl glimpse of that I, I, I don't know I don't think that surfaced on YouTube but um, I, yeah I, I, I know what you mean I, I think there was a couple close you know misses for him um, uh, um, his, his novel The Glass Cage which is one of these crime novels which he uses the format in order to, you know, talk about these ideas about consciousness and mysticism, the relationship between, you know, this search for intensity, consciousness, and crime. Um, and I, I, th I, I think that was, you know, there was a, a film deal for that. The option, you know, the option had been bought, but it never quite got there. Um, something that, sadly, he, he didn't, complete that he, he uh, regretted. Um, it was there, there was this novel that he was working on for, for the longest time called Lulu. And it was based on Frank Vedekin's, uh, character, the Lulu character in his novels, Erdgeist, or Earth Spirit. Uh, and, um, the same character that's filmed, that, that's the focus of, G uh, Pabst, the German filmmaker, uh, G.W. Pabst film. And it's about this woman who's just, you know, generates this incredible sexual energy and, and, uh, and this is something Wilson was always interested in. I mean, he was—he he wasn't interested in drugs. He tried mescaline. He didn't care for it. his sort of consciousness-changing thing was sex, and not—not not in this kind of tantric or Alistair Crowley or kind of decadent sort of way. But he was very, very attuned to understanding um, how how sex has this transformative effect, and he wanted to capture this in, in this novel, and he never finished it. it, it it's been published recently. Um, Colin Stanley. Again, brought it out as Pauper's Press edition, but it was actually um, a dramatization was commissioned by the BBC, and he, he somehow wasn't able to do it. They weren't able to finish it. This is one of the things that um, who knows, you know, if he had been able. But yeah, there are these strange bits and pieces. You know, he wrote. Um, uh, he didn't get a credit for it, but he but but he wrote a great deal of the script for uh, Dino De Laurentiis's um, film Flash Gordon. Um, he, he didn't want his name on <laughs> the credits. But but he wrote a great deal of it. So yeah, there are these you know little strange bits and pieces where he pops up. But I know what you mean. He never quite you know planted. I mean he planted himself in books obviously, and he was in magazines, and newspapers, and all. You know, he he wrote for the uh, what was it the Mail, Daily Mail. He, he was sort of like you know their mystic Meg in a way. You know, you might, we're talking about his his fiction there in, in passing, and uh, he is on record as, as saying uh, no philosopher. Is, mm. qual is qualified to do his job unless he is also a novelist. And, and he also, he wrote about the, the form of the novel itself as, mm. as a tool or technology in the quest for his uh, famed faculty X. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, we mentioned earlier, uh, Ritual in the Dark, 
uh, the early novel, Adrift in Soho, the one that we were talking about earlier, being adapted to a movie coming out this year. Some of his best-known ones are The Mind Parasites, his kind of Lovecraftian homage or update, or however you like to put it. Uh, the Philosopher's Stone uh, is also very good. There's The Black Room, which is, I particularly enjoyed. The Spider World series, the sort of later ones, yeah. which are hit him as most populous, perhaps. Uh, Space Vampires, which was made into the film Life Force, and I was yes. I was only made <laughs> I was only made aware of that uh, film adaptation upon reading your book, and I then oh, went really? I, yeah. yeah I then went and watched Life Force, and it was kind of like hmm okay yeah it's it's it has very little to do with um yeah with the book well I mean my joke about that film that that there are there are two good things about that film, and the leading actress has both of them. Ha! <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that was. Dur- it sounds horribly sexist, but you know. Well, it is what it is, you know. Yeah. Uh, in, I mean, you know, that's yeah. You know, no, I, I know what you mean. No, I he, I I I, t- I I tell the story that he tells, or the anecdote that he tells about how the novelist John Fowles once wrote um, Wilson a letter. In the letter, he he mentioned the film version of his his novel, The Magus, this you know, great novel of his, which was made into. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen it for years, but I do remember it not being a particularly good film. I think it's Michael Caine. It's, no, no, is it Michael Caine? I, I, I forget who plays the lead, but it's also Anthony Quinn is in it and, and so on. And then uh, when Life Force came out, Wilson sent um, Fowles a postcard saying, you know, I've done you one better. You know, this is even worse than, you know, the film version of The Magus. But um, I mean, no, I, well, I, I think The Black Room is one of his most important um, uh, books. And it's one, I think, uh, what he's very good at is adapting sort of genre fiction for his philosophical purposes. And yes. if, you want to get, if, if, if you want to get all kind of lit crit about it, it, he was doing a kind of postmodern strategy well in advance of it, you know, taking kind of whatever, the, the genre, the mystery genre, or the erotica genre, or, you know, the, the science fiction or the horror, and then using it for his own purposes. And he was also doing this kind of time slip sort of thing, you know, where there's scenes in contemporary time and then in the past or something, in advance of Peter Ackroyd doing it, and, and that was his that was his thing in most of his novels. You know, Wilson was doing that in his novels. Foster Stone, he does that, which is one of my favorites too. Uh, I mean, in the Mind Parasites, I mean that that's the classic. This is where you know, again, he he's basically if you want to understand Wilson's philosophy, you just have to read that uh, because uh, it's it's kind of Husserlian phenomenology meets Lovecraft, um, as you say, and he's just able to. Um, He's just able to create this kind of narrative, and so much of the, the the action in it, as it were, takes place in this interior world. You know, there's no ray guns; it's all these battles going on, but it's battles within the mind. These uh, psychic uh, parasites that have invaded, you know, the, the the consciousness, human consciousness, and they've been responsible for the deaths of all these geniuses over the years. Uh, you know, it, it, when, whenever any one of us gets aware uh, that these parasites are uh, these vampires are in our mind and sucking us dry and, and, you know, make efforts to get rid of them. Then they, you know, they, they crush them. And Wilson, you know, his character in there. And, and uh, there's a band of people who learn how to, through, through, through the methods of, um, you know, Husserl, Edmund Husserl, the German philosopher's his philosophical method of uh, phenomenology, which is a way of understanding and <clears throat> sort of analyzing the structures of consciousness. They're, they're able to somehow, you know, evade or throw off these parasites and then suddenly all these powers that are there waiting for us to use but have, have been have been sort of dampened by these by these uh, mind sucking things that are available to them and uh, yeah you know this is his kind of you know it's it's tongue in cheek at the same time but it's also his picture of well here's here's the possibilities of of mankind and in a way i think 
this one thing I I, I asked Colin um, because I I knew him over the years and I, I did ask him at one point just because he wrote so much I wondered were you trying to outright H.G. Wells because H.G. Wells also wrote a great deal and even though I think you know Wilson said that Shaw was major influence on him I, I think in many ways he's more like Wells just in the sense obviously he, he wrote novels and books of nonfiction whereas Shaw is mostly known for his plays um, and the prefaces. But um, <clears throat> also using, you know, the science fiction or using the novel for these philosophical purposes. And you were saying how, you know, he, he, he even writes about using the novel for philosophical purposes. He has a great book for writers called The Craft of the Novel. Um, I, I read, I mean, I haven't tried, tried fiction myself yet. I'd like to do that before it's too late. But if you're interested, and even if you're just interested in, in his ideas about fiction writing, The Craft of the Novel is a wonderful book. And it's also, he, he also applies these ideas in, in, in different books of his about um, what he calls existential criticism, strength of dream. And he's very good when he's writing about other writers. I, I think that's one of his great uh, talents. I mean, he's most known for you know, writing about the occult or the paranormal or existentialism or, let's say, in his last years, he was writing a great deal about um, ancient civilizations, you know, the kind of Graham Hancock um, kind of thing, but he's very, very good writing about other writers, and he's very good at getting into how how they work and their mechanics. And uh, I, I would say, you know, if if any if anything I write is at all readable, it's because I picked up this kind of uh, narrative style, whatever you know, movement. I wouldn't say drive. It's but you know, this kind of movement that he has, because it's it's basically motivated by a kind of interest and curiosity, want to understand something. And this is where his optimism comes in a lot too. You know, yes, he, he's very much into the, the intuition and the mystical and, you know, this other mode of consciousness, right brain. He writes about that a lot. But it's also very much, very much driven by this, this, this insatiable curiosity. And, and as I said before, this kind of appetite for knowledge, like wanting to know and wanting to understand. And, and in that sense, you know, furthering precincts of our own kind of existence, you know, pushing, pushing the, the kind of, uh, you know, walls of our own being further out and the more we understand. And I think that's, that's one of the things I, that he shares with Wells is this, this kind of, uh, curiosity, you know, this, and, and this, this optimism, this, this, this belief in, in man's ability to understand his own experience. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, uh, his interest, uh, particularly laterally in ancient civilizations, Atlantis, for example, and the whole idea of aliens and uh, UFO visitations, what have you, something that he spoke and wrote about. I don't know what what you feel about uh, some of the later books, because uh, to some extent he was almost commenting on work that other people had done in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for example, you, you mentioned how he did come late to the UFO phenomenon, um, and he looked at that, gave it his consideration, weighed in with his thoughts and opinions. So just, I mean, your thoughts on... On his his last works, mm-hmm. uh, latter works, I should say, and also, I don't know how much thought you've ever given to where he he might have gone. You know, mm-hmm. uh, what might have been next for Colin Wilson uh, had mm-hmm. he had he been twenty years younger and still been publishing now. Oh well, that, that, that yeah, okay, well, uh, well, back to the first part of that. I mean, the later books. Um, yeah, he did get uh, in the sort of mid nineties. Uh, well, he became interested in Atlantis. Uh, as he tells the story, he became interested in this um, in the early 90s um, when he became aware of uh, the stuff that was coming out with John Anthony West and Robert Schalk and Shwala de Lubitsch and the idea that the, the Sphinx was much older than the official account and so on. 
And again, he was approached by Dino De Laurentiis um, with an idea, you know, for a film script. Um, and um, apparently this is something that he did, you know, a few times, where Dino De Laurentiis, you know, the 70s, 80s, um, you know, film, film producer of, like, you know, great kind of schlock hits. Um, he um, <clears throat> basically, you know, just put Wilson in a room in a hotel somewhere, said you could order anything you want and, you know, just give me a script and, you know, by, by the end of the week. And so Wilson would just write away and do this. And one of the things he did was about Atlantis. Um, so this was sort of on his mind. And um, then he basically, he did this book called, you know, From Atlantis to the Sphinx. And he raised the question of, okay, yes, there may very well have been this earlier civilization, you know, prior to what we, we recognize as the, as the, as the dawn of, of civilization now. Um, but, you know, fine, that's interesting and all that. But in the long run, what does it mean, you know, for us? And then he, he, he came to the conclusion that, well, you know, he believed that they, they, they had a different kind of consciousness than we had. And so it got him into his, you know, usual kind of, you know, uh, area, which is talking about consciousness. And so he produced this book that became, you know, more as kind of a bestseller for him. Again, this, uh, from Atlantis to the Sphinx. And this was, I think, 96. In fact, I remember I was, that's when I first moved to London. And I remember going with him. Um, he was in town to a couple talks he was giving in, in a couple different places. And he was, and, um, and then he followed that up with, um, there was another book. He got involved, uh, with, uh, someone that he later had a falling out with. I'm, I'm not going to mention their name, but this fellow, uh, had done a lot of research in a fellow named Charles Hapgood, who was a geologist, American uh, ge um, geographer. Um, and he had come up with the theory that there had been an ancient maritime civilization, um, you know, prior to, uh, what, again, what we, officially recognizes the dawn of civilization by, by some, you know, several thousand years. It was sort of along the same line, just in the sense, let's say, as John Michel, when he talked about the, in his book, The View Over Atlantis, it wasn't so much about the actual, you know, famous continent. It was the idea that, that you know, there was this kind of prehistoric civilization er, earlier than the Egyptians and whatsoever, and that, you know, subsequent civilizations like the Egyptians and other places had inherited much of their knowledge and so on. So it was in that kind of area. And, and he did this book called The Atlantis Blueprint. It was based on this other fellow's work of you know, different sacred sites um, were located across the planet and they all were connected in a variety of different ways and so on and so on. And he got involved in that. And I, one thing that happened was that um, in the process of doing this book called Atlantis, Wilson had chapter um, about the Neanderthals, basically suggesting or at least raising the question of, of could, could, could Neanderthal have been, you know, the ancestor actually, you know, was, you know, created this civilization, this prehistoric civilization. And Wilson's friend Stan Gooch, um, who uh, was a psychologist uh, who uh, switched from psychology to writing about the paranormal uh, in the 70s, wrote, wrote many fantastic books, one of which was called Total Man, his first book, which was actually a brilliant book. He believe that uh, Neanderthal was much more intelligent and he, in fact, funnily enough, um, it's a bit of a tangent here, but funnily enough, a lot of the things that Gooch wrote about Neanderthal, and he wrote these three books, Neanderthal, uh, Total Man and the Personality and Evolution, and I think the Neanderthal question, there were three trilogy of books, and he, many of the things he said about or his suggestions, Gooch had, had speculated that Neanderthal may have been intelligent enough to have had some kind of civilization and so on and so on, and Wilson wanted to introduce this material into the book. But through a series of events that it's unclear exactly what happened, 
in the end product of the book, the chapter on Neanderthal was taken out, and Wilson felt that it was taken out without his knowledge, and so there was a falling out between he and his collaborator. And so what he did was then do another book after it called Atlantis and the, uh, the Kingdom of the Neanderthals, which is, um, yeah, I, I say in the book that I felt like it was a mistake for him to do. Uh, I, I think what he had to say about the Neanderthals, he could have said in an article, which he did say in, 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 the, in an issue of Fordian Times. And it was kind of slightly about like, well, I, I want this stuff in the book and damn it, I'm going to have it. You know, so he, he made his own book. And yeah, you're right. He did. What he was doing a lot of was reading a lot of the material and sort of piecing it together in his own way, which is interesting enough. But I think if you had already read like the previous two books, you would have got most of the material in this other. And it's also, I mean, from my own point of view, I have to say, I mean, I, I love Colin's stuff. I've, I've read it over and over and over and over again for years and years. But these are my least favorite. I do feel he was getting a, he was getting too much into a variety of different things that are, um, what can we say, you know, at best, you know, still speculative, kind of like Priory of Zion sort of stuff and, and um, Freemason, accounts of Freemasonry, the high room key and things of that sort. What he did, the last, last couple of books, I, after he wrote about, you know, Tebbit had to say about um, ancient civilizations. I, I, I think in these two last books, he um, came back to what I, I feel he was best at doing and, and what his work was about. And um, one was his his take on the on the Angry Young Man periods, a book called The Angry Years. And that came about because um, he was quite unhappy, or in fact, you could say angry, um, at uh, the writer Humphrey Carpenter's book called The Angry Young Years. Um, which he felt was a travesty. Uh, Carpenter was a biographer of, of Tolkien, and he wrote that book about the Inklings, which is a very good book. But this book, Angry Young, Angry Young Men, was actually, um, according to Wilson, not very good. And so he wanted to, you know, give his last work because he was one of the last ones alive, you know, from that time. Most of them had um, died, and um, so he, you know, he was quite able to say what he had to say about them without worrying about, you know, being sued for libel or anything. And it makes it a very good gossipy uh, book. And as I say, he's very good when he's writing about other writers. Um, and then his other book called Superconsciousness, which he, which he had been working on off and on um, for some time. And I think a Japanese edition had appeared earlier. But this is sort of his summing up of uh, his um, his work about consciousness. And it's kind of his DIY book. I mean, he, he never really said, here, do this. He wasn't a guru like that. He wasn't a teacher like that. He was a writer, a philosopher, interested in ideas. and But he also had, you know, had... Uh, methods developed at least you know empirical uh kind of uh, uh approaches to uh, dealing with this consciousness and and in um, this book super consciousness he kind of spells it out and in fact a couple of years ago i i did a class uh an online course in that book um for the california institute of integral studies and most of those people had never heard of wilson before and they were actually quite um you know surprised that here's this whole philosophy of consciousness they'd never heard of so just as we draw things to a close for today, Gary, just a, a couple of final points. A general one along, I mean, we as a species seem to need challenges. I mentioned this kind of reflecting on what you said earlier about, you know, Toynbee's challenge and response, just, you know, how we move forward, but also that the Goldilocks aspect of that, you know, not enough to crush us, but not so little as to, you know, for us to remain unmotivated. And um, I was reflecting on the whole idea of the outsider, perhaps what we're working towards, you know, maybe a society where outsiders are the majority. <laughs> They're no longer outsiders. But And then I thought, well, would we then just get new 
outsiders? You know, would the old outsiders become the insiders? You know, and, and you see <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess in one sense that generational conflict that happens. You know, I mean, in one sense, just Wilson himself. And when I first came here. Um, I was surprised that a lot of people's reaction that I knew to Wilson, they thought, oh, yeah, you know, he wrote a couple good books, but he just kept repeating himself over and over. And they kind of saw him as this, you know, older character who had just kind of been there for ages. And, you know, that was very different for me. But then I, I'm a bit older than them. And they were more, you know, post-punk, I guess, or slipstream or, I don't know, steampunk area. And it was, it was sort of J.G. Ballard or people like that were more, you know, their style, let's say. Uh, Wilson was a bit too optimistic for them. So, but, you know, I mean, I don't know in terms of, I mean, in terms of like, you know, civilization getting better or society getting better, yes, one hopes. Uh, I, I think Wilson believed um, that there were signs that there was a possibility for this. This is where he talks about the, the, the shift in consciousness, Western consciousness with the romantics and this kind of suddenly, you know, the imagination becomes something that, uh, is much more powerful. It's, it's as if suddenly, you know, it got high octane, uh, petrol, um, and it could flare up into these, you know, ecstasies that the, the, the romantics, you know, from Goethe to Blake to so many others, uh, and again, for some it was too much, you know, they burnt out. Um, but it was a sign that there was, you know, man had this potential, you know, for these ecstatic, more powerful states of consciousness, and the idea was how do we understand them? So for Wilson, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but gradually there could be more and more people who do have a greater grasp of, of, of this, you know, this notion. And also, you know, he did, he was optimistic. You know, I think he believed that, like Abraham Maslow, the psychologist believed that there were more people out there who actually were trying to self-actualize. You know, they were trying to have a life that centered around values greater than just creature comforts or, you know, um, inquisitiveness or, you know, fear motivated, uh, um, uh, drives, you know, more, more being motivated, you know, Things, uh, th th things that have meaning, intrinsic meaning. Uh, the 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 uh, literary critic or academic George Steiner has a wonderful phrase, which he calls the sovereignly useless. It's about things that you know have no utilitarian value, let's say, but you know they 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 have an immediate kind of um, meaning content value. And this was something that Wilson was you know interested in. He wanted to learn how we how to tune into these kind of things that are there all the time, but you know because of our Sleep, as Gurdjieff would say, or because we're we're subject to the robot, as Wilson says, you know, we don't we don't recognize them. So um, I'm optimistic. You know, I I I I I tend to think of something along with creative minority. I don't know who they are. I'm assuming they're out there. You know, I'm doing this, so there must be other people. I can't be the only one. You're there. You're, you're doing stuff too. So I, I I don't see it as some kind of concerted movement, but as a gradual kind of you know. Uh, what do you want to call it, a kind of development. You know, if you talk about non-locality with, um, you know, sort of particles or non-locality with neurons in the brain, so perhaps there's non-locality in the wider kind of social or planetary, dare I say it, um, kind of um, sphere where, you know, pe people working um, along similar lines but not necessarily concerted, you know, together, but it's happening in some kind of broader overall kind of way. And it's precisely what people like, Herman Hesse in the early 20th century and Uspensky themselves were saying when they, they would meet people from different backgrounds, different races and cultures and nationalities, and all of them spoke the same language. It was this, and I, I think, you know, each generation or different times, there's different variants of that. There was something like that, you know, pre-New Age in the 80s, what was called the Aquarian Conspiracy. You know, it was before it was called the New Age, and it was this general kind of sense. It sounds kind of corny now and all that, because we live in a very cynical time. But again, this whole idea that, you know, 
little little sort of pockets of intelligence and maturity, let's say. That's <laughs> something to aim for. Let, let, let's aim for that. Let's try for that. I think fundamentally, I think that's what Wilson is talking about. And the outsider is someone who wants to actually, you know, mature. He wants to become something more than the kind of self-centered, you know, child that we, we, we take to be, you know, uh, the normal human beings. So uh, I'm sure you could talk about this for hours, but I've got to ask I you. Have. To... I, 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 Greg, Greg, I, I just have. Well, I was going. To... <laughs> uh, it's teasing you. Sorry. I'm sure you could talk about what <laughs> I'm sure you could talk about what I'm just about to put to you for hours. Right, I've got to ask you about yes. about meeting Colin Wilson because oh. it's something that I never did, and unfortunately, as I said to you in a previous interview. I had, um, when I read Super Consciousness, I had decided that I'd finally, I would interview him and unfortunately he passed away. But just t- tell us just a little bit, just for a moment or two about, about meeting Colin. Well, I mean, well, if, if asking him for his autograph at the end of that talk in January 1981 at the Village Bookshop on Regent Street counts as meeting him, then that was the first time, but that wasn't quite really. I mean, the, the real sort of official meeting is when I went on a pilgrimage down to uh, Gorin Haven where he lived. And this was in the summer of 1983 when I was on a kind of a mini search for the miraculous with a friend of mine. And we had gone to, you know, kind of some sacred sites, Chart Cathedral and Glastonbury and Stonehenge and Avery. And we went to Gurdjieff's Prairie in Fontainebleau, found, you know, where he had had his Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man and so on. And then we separated at one point, And one of the places I wanted to go to was to meet Colin because I'd been reading his books since uh, 1975 and I had been collecting them and you know so on and so on and um, I remember I had a copy of Mysteries with me because uh, I was very much into the uh, sta- uh, you know ley line thing at the time earth 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 mysteries that was very big and one of the other things I was doing in Cornwall was you know had my ordnance map survey map and all that and I was checking out these standard stones in fields of cows and things like that but I I I I, I yeah I finally just I forgot how I got his phone number. I got his phone number from a. I, I now I now realize I got his phone number most likely from a malicious bookseller in in uh, London who wanted to bother him because he said, oh yeah, he likes visitors. So uh, he he gave me his phone number and so I I had hitched down to Penzance and I was in Penzance and I called him from a phone phone box and he and he said yes of course fine you know you can come by he was always you know everyone was dropping by there all the time and. Um, I remember I, yes, I, I took the, uh, I got the train to, um, um, God, where is it? Uh, St. Austell. Um, and his wife, Joy, picked me up and, uh, drove there to his place. Uh, you know, big, um, you know, kind of, uh, house. Nothing, nothing particularly fancy. It's full of books, mostly. I don't know, 40, 50,000, you know, copies of books and CDs and, well, it was, I don't think it was CDs by then, uh, albums and things of that sort. I mean, over the years, I went back many times, uh, more than that. Um, and um, basically spent an evening, you know, drinking wine, and uh, he was explaining to me uh, Husserl's ideas about phenomenology. And as I say in the book, by the end of the evening, I, I, I pretty, I thought I had it. Um, no, but it was, you know, it was the beginning of... Um, I guess a mentorship on, on my side. Uh, no, I mean, over the years, I just, you know, visited him often. And at one point, when I was living in Los Angeles and I was working at, um, biggest, uh, metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies called the Bodhi Tree that no longer exists. Um, Wilson was coming to LA to give some lectures and I was house sitting for one of the owners of the bookshop and they had this fantastic, uh, Zen castle up in the Hollywood Hills, Laurel Canyon, uh, kind of Joni Mitchell 
territory. And um, I said, why don't you stay with, with, with me? And so he did. So he stayed at this um, place I was house-sitting for. And uh, we had parties there and all that kind of thing. So, you know, over the years, it was, um, you know, um, I mean, many other people, you know, he had lots and lots and lots of people visiting him all the time. Um, so I wasn't, you know, sort of um, kind of you know, favored in any way, I don't think. But I certainly uh, kept up um, correspondence with him as long as I could. And uh, whenever he came to London, I mean, I started living here in 96, you know, we, we, he would, we would get together and so on. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, um, what can I say? I'm very glad that I had an opportunity to get to know him and also get to know his family. Uh, I, I, you know, I feel very close to them. As far as I can tell, they're very happy with the book. Well, final thought. You mentioned earlier, uh, speaking about, uh, writers and, you know, how Colum is very good writing about writers. And he, he met so many major literary figures, uh, mm. many, many of whom were more famous than him, you know, just in, in, in crude terms. Um, I don't know if he ever met, Dennis Wheatley. That's one thing I always wanted to ask him about because I'd be fascinated by the conversation they might have had. I think so. But um, uh, I remember at the point, I used to have this thing where, well, I suppose I still do. It's, it's kind of like not fantasy football. It's, it's fantasy dinner <laughs> fantasy dinner party. Like, you know, if you could invite and have turn up mm. anyone you like to your house for a dinner party, who would be there? And uh, my list had always included people like uh, Peter Ustinoff, uh, Gore Vidal, Clive James, Alan Wicker, the tra- Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Vince- <laughs> Vin- Vincent Price, who actually I was going to get to do the cooking because he was a bit of a gastronome. Oh. And I remember the point when I added Colin Wilson to that <laughs> list. That'd be a hell of a party, really. Oh, yeah, sounds fantastic. Well, it, what it sounds like is there used to be an old TV show back in the 50s in America, the American sort of he was a kind of cerebral comic Steve Allen I don't know if he ever translated over to the UK but he, but but he he had um he had this uh um he had a program called Meeting of Minds and then he would have these sort of you know kind of round table but it was someone like you know William Blake and Einstein and Picasso and you know whatever all these different people you know again and kind of you know um shooting the intellectual breeze as it were uh, well, there's a wonderful st- story um, I retell uh, where Colin, um, and he was still a young man, on his first trip to the States, and he was in California, and he had he had met Christopher Isherwood. They they had you know they had become friends and they had um, corresponded, and he was this is when Isherwood well Isherwood was living in in Santa Monica, you know I think since the 40s, and um, Wilson was lecturing nearby and so Isherwood invited him and then um it somehow turned out that Henry Miller had wanted to meet Wilson and found out and sort of invited himself over to Isherwood's as well and Isherwood wasn't particularly happy about that because he had met Miller before and thought he was a bore and then on top of that then they all climbed into somebody's car you know Isherwood Miller and Wilson and they drove over to Aldous Huxley's place Hmm. and there was this scene where it's like Wilson um Huxley Isherwood and Miller and, um, I mean, Wilson has his account of it. Um, I, I, I think there's a brief sort of mention of it in one of Christopher Isherwood's diaries or something like that. And I, I don't know what Miller or Puxley ever, ever wrote about it, but you can imagine, you know, he, here he is with, um, I mean, he, he's, he said good things about Isherwood. He's very respectful toward Huxley, but if Huxley's read any of his literary critical books, he, he does take him to task for his heroes being very weak. 
and, and, and kind of ineffectual. And then Miller, he, you know, he wrote about how much he sort of appreciated his sort of Whitman-esque vitality, but he thought in the long run he didn't have much to say. So, and then you have this kind of young, you know, Wilson basically just really revved up, full of beans, as it were. And Colin himself, he was always rather, I've always seen him rather quiet, you know. I mean, um, he's very polite and very quiet, but I always got, you know, he even says like the last thing he wants to do is talk about, you know, sort of ideas after he's been writing all day. He, he, he even said, I'm, I'm a very poor, very poor host. You know, people would come. Uh, he usually gets, he would get up at 5 a.m. and read for a few hours, then work all day. And then he would end, at, you know, sort of four-ish or late afternoon, go for a walk on the cliffs with the dogs, come back, have white wine, um, smoked salmon and avocado, um, uh, while Joy prepared the meal. And then he would watch the TV news, I think ITV or something like that. <laughs> you know, and he's just watching the news and then basically you're sitting there. So in, in many ways, it's sort of like, you know, you think when you're going to, you meet someone whose work you admire, you're going to get something more than what you have already, but actually you've met, met them in their books or their music or their paintings. And when you meet them in the flesh, that, that's what you're meeting. You're meeting them in the flesh and they're just like you, basically. Yeah, well, what I would take away from that is hopefully what Colin would have wanted, which is that this is within all of us. Anyone can do this. So, okay, well... Absolutely. I think that's one of the messages he wanted to put out. It's like, you know, no, I'm not special. I just, I worked at it. I took the risks. And it's just a matter of courage and determination. There's no, there's no magic trick. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay, uh, today, Gary, we've been rounding off, as I mentioned at the top of the show... Uh, part three um, of our little mini-series uh, about Colin Wilson, uh, based on your book, Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. The interview page on the website contains links to various resources, including, for example, colinwilsonworld.net. Uh, just share with listeners, however, your own website, and you've already mentioned that uh, you've got you've published books since book or books since the Colin Wilson one, and you've got another one coming out as you mentioned a little bit yes. earlier. Just say anything you'd like to about okay. that, and uh, we we've also I will be an attendee at the Colin Wilson conference you mentioned. Now there's very very limited places for that. In fact, it may already be sold out. I'm not sure. Yes, if you, if you, I, my, my, my website or blog is, uh, garylockman.co.uk. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, um, most recent book that's come out is called, um, The Lost Knowledge of Imagination. Uh, that's, um, a book about how imagination is, uh, actually a cognitive faculty. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a means of make believe or, of uh, creating some kind of substitute or alternate world to escape from this one. And, um, as I mentioned, Earlier, uh, later in the year, the end of May, um, I have a book out um, called Dark Star, called Dark Star Rising: Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, and it's about um, all the strange occult politics that have surrounded uh, Trump's presidency, and also uh, stuff happening in other parts of the world. Splendid. Well, Gary, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Absolutely, my pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me on.